Imagine that it's the middle of the night and you are lost in the woods. You don't know where you are. You don't know where you're going. You can barely see six inches in front of your face and you're fumbling around, stumbling around in the dark. When suddenly things go from bad to worse for you because you realize you've come upon the edge of a cliff and in your stumbling and your fumbling around, you've actually fallen off the edge of that cliff and you are falling fast down the edge. When suddenly a branch, a limb catches you and you are holding onto it and you are desperately grabbing on for dear life, knowing that if you let go of that branch, you will fall down the rest of the way of the cliff. I realize that's a really dramatic way to begin a sermon. I've told you the first part of a story written by William James in a book he published in 1902 called Varieties of Religious Experience. And I want to pause the story right there, right with you hanging onto that branch, hanging on desperately for dear life. I want to ask a question. What do you need in that moment? As you hang there, do you need to recall some positive and affirming words? Come on, you can do it. Hang on a bit longer. Well, that might be nice to do, but it's not actually what you need. Do you need a job promotion at work? More money. Do you need your kids to get into the best college or at least to stop bickering for an hour? Those are all good things, but they're not actually what you need in that moment as you hang on desperately for dear life to a limb, to a branch on the side of a cliff. No, what you need in that moment is rescue. You need to be saved. You need salvation. And according to the Bible, all of us in a spiritual sense are in that state apart from Christ. We need salvation. We cannot do for ourselves what's needed in our condition. No, we need rescue. We need to be saved. We need salvation. I want to keep that story paused right there, right with you hanging on that limb. For the majority of this sermon, we're going to come back to you. But first, we're going to learn about what happened on Palm Sunday. It's Palm Sunday today. It's that day that we celebrate Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, people waving palm branches and removing their coats before him. And we learn something about the meaning, the significance of Palm Sunday. If we look at verse 9, if we realize what the people were shouting as Jesus came into Jerusalem to begin what we now call Holy Week, where he would ultimately die on the cross and rise again on the third day. In verse 9, we realize that the people were shouting something as David entered into that week. They were shouting a word, Hosanna. Hosanna. And Hosanna means something. It comes from the Hebrew word, two words put together, Hoshiana. Hoshiana, which basically means save, please. Save, please. Hoshiana. It might be what we would yell if we were speaking in Hebrew, hanging from that branch, hanging from that limb on the edge of a cliff. We might realize that we cannot do for ourselves what's needed in that moment, and that we need rescue, we need salvation. We might yell out, hanging on the edge of that cliff, Hoshiana! Somebody come and save me. 
that's what the people were yelling as Jesus came into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Hoshiana, save us, please. That word had come on to take on a whole new meaning over the years. By the time Jesus got there, it had really become almost like a victory cry, meaning salvation is here. But in its original root form, it simply means save, please. And here's the thing about those people who were yelling, Hoshiana, to Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. What we know from the rest of the story is that they were half right. They were half right in their cry, save us, Hoshiana. They were right in the sense that that is why Jesus came. He came to save us. But they were wrong, at least based on what we know from the rest of the story, they were wrong in exactly who Jesus came to save us from. How were they wrong? Well, they thought basically that Jesus had come to save them from the Romans. We know this partly because of the way they complete the phrase. They say, Hosanna, Hoshia, not to the son of David, the son of David. That's a name that we have for Jesus. It meant something specifically to the people at the time of Jesus, the son of David. It's in reference, of course, to King David, the long ago king of the nation of Israel. And in their remembrance of King David and in the time of King David, they had remembered a glorious era in the nation. An era when there was relative peace and prosperity and security. Now, it wasn't exactly like that. If you go back and read the biography of David, you realize it wasn't that simple. But in their nostalgia, they remembered the time of King David, at least as a time when the Romans weren't occupying their land. So, of course, they thought when Messiah came, when the son of David would come, he would restore the nation of Israel to those glory days by throwing out the Roman occupiers. And so this is probably what they thought when they were yelling, Hoshiana, please save. They were probably meaning, save us, Jesus, from the Romans, from the Roman occupiers. You know, for years, I kind of thought this was a bit silly of them, a bit short-sighted, because we now know in hindsight that what Jesus came to say was so much greater than that. But when I really put myself in their sandals, I begin to understand a little bit more. Of course, they were hoping that Jesus would save them from the Romans. Can you imagine their experience? They were living in Israel. They were living in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that God had granted them to live their lives and be free and honor God with their faithfulness. And there they were living in that land, but they weren't alone. They had these occupiers. Imagine a Roman soldier with his armor, with his sword, patrolling the streets of your neighborhood, telling you what you can do, what you can't do. Imagine not only the Roman soldiers marching around, but the tax collectors. Every time you earned a buck, the tax collector would say, oh, part of that is owed to the government in Rome. Yeah, I would want salvation from the Romans as well. I would want Messiah to come and, and kick out those oppressors from my life too. So they were half right that Jesus came to save, but they were wrong, understandably so, in who he came to save them from. They thought the problem was out there. They thought the problem was with the Romans. They thought the problem was with the occupiers in their lives. 
this is really understandable. I'm trying to make the argument that it's understandable, not just because of the situation that they were in, but because of the way the human heart works. We can pretty clearly see the wrongdoings of other people. We can see the injustices that other people inflict upon us. We can see that very clearly, can't we? My mom is a, a mediation specialist. She works with people in conflict. For example, neighbors who are arguing about where the neighbor, where the property line falls. She'll meet with each side and try to work out a mediation. Or sometimes she'll meet with husbands and wives who are heading towards divorce. She'll sit with a husband and she'll hear his side of the story. And he will sit there and he will list for her all the wrongs that his wife does. He can cite chapter and verse on all the terrible things that she's done to him. My mom begins thinking, wow, this sounds like a, a monster. So he leaves the room and pretty soon she's meeting with the wife herself. She sits down and she looks perfectly normal. And she sits down and she tells her side of the story. What does she say? She doesn't say everything you heard from him is true. I'm a monster. No. She cites chapter and verse of all the wrong things he has done, all the terrible, awful things that he has done. We have this amazing ability to think that the problem is outside of ourselves. It doesn't just happen on an individual basis like that. It happens society-wide. It's happening right now in our time on a massive scale. Everywhere I go, I encounter this. I hang out with people who love to talk about what's wrong with our world. Do you ever hear these conversations? Do you ever have these conversations? Be honest. Everywhere I go, people love to sit around and talk about what's wrong with our world. I have some friends who are what you would call liberals. I have some friends that you would call conservatives. And they both have a different story to tell, kind of like the husband and wife that my mom encounters in mediation services. When I hang around with my liberal friends, they talk about what's wrong with the world and they use phrases like the patriarchy or privilege. If we could just get rid of the corrupt patriarchy, if we could just get rid of people abusing their privilege, we could have a harmonious, utopian, equal society. I also hang out with my conservative friends and they don't use those phrases for what's wrong with the world. No, they have another phrase, something like um, secular leftism, the secular left or socialism. If we could just get rid of secularist, leftist, socialists from our society, we could return to the traditions in the glory days that we used to enjoy. You see, both parties, both camps are able to see the wrongdoing of the other, just like the people at the time of Jesus when he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. They were probably saying, save us, save us, please, Hoshia na, from those people out there, the Romans. And all of us, because of the human heart, because of the nature of sin, are able to think about the problem as outside of ourselves. But what Jesus came to solve, what Jesus came to save us from, is not actually those people out there. No, he came to save us from ourselves. In 1910, there was an article written in the London Times. The title of the article was, What's Wrong with the World? And it was a little bit like those conversations I was just describing that I hear all over the place. 
There's a full and robust article about all the things wrong in society. And there was a man who wrote a letter to the editor the next week. His name was G.K. Chesterton, Christian theologian and author. And he wrote a letter in regards to this article that he had read. And here's what the letter said. Dear sirs, in regards to your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. You see, what G.K. Chesterton understood is that the problems in our world, the corruption in our world begin right here. Right here in the corrupt human sin-stained heart and that what we need salvation from, what we need saving from is our own sin. That that's why Jesus came. G.K. Chesterton knew what was prophesied in the book of Isaiah where it says this in Isaiah 53 verse 5 describing Jesus on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed. Notice it doesn't say that Jesus came to the cross to free us from people who wrong us. No, he was wounded for our transgressions. Peter in the New Testament would quote this very prophecy and he would specifically tie it to the cross. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you, you, you have been healed. That's why Jesus came. That's what we cry out to receive salvation from. Hoshiana, save me, God, from myself. It's harder to admit that. It's easier to cite chapter and verse of all those people out there ruining my life. It's harder to say what G.K. Chesterton said. I'm the problem. But it's not as hard as you might think. I want to return now to the story we began with. You, hanging on that limb, desperately for dear life, knowing that as soon as you let go, you fall the rest of the way down the cliff, knowing that you need rescue. The way the story concludes is that the person, finally, at the end of their energy, at the end of their will to survive, the person lets go. Only to discover that the ground was six inches beneath their feet. They fall the rest of the way down the cliff and it's only six inches and they tumble onto the ground laughing with grateful joy. You see, salvation is nearer than you think when you let go. When you let go of your own self-righteousness, when you let go of your own anger, when you let go of your own desire to control every situation, when you let go, 
when you cry out, Hoshiana, save me. And you know that you are the one who needs salvation from Jesus. When you let go of all your own notions, you fall. You fall into the grace of God. Because this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. It's true what G.K. Chesterton said, what's wrong with the world. I am. That's true. We are more wicked than we ever dared imagine. Each of us. But it's also true that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are more loved and accepted and forgiven than we ever dared hope. So on this Palm Sunday, as we come out of the pandemic, where everybody's got somebody to blame, let's be people who aren't half right and half wrong about Jesus. Let's be people who, when we see our Savior, when we see salvation coming, when we see our rescue, when we behold Jesus upon the cross, we cry out, Hoshiana! Hoshiana! Save us, Jesus. And thank you for saving us. Thank you for tasting the wrath of God, for dying in our place so that we might be forgiven, so that we might die to ourselves and live to righteousness. Hoshiana. Amen.